0: The Anchored City podcast is recorded in Anchorage, Alaska, on the traditional lands of the Dena'ina Athabascan people.
1: I have heard the oldest stories that the wisest man ever told. And I cast aside my worries and just went digging for gold And I will scale the highest mountains looking for the bluest blue But of all the roads I'll ever
0: walk I just can't have you. Welcome to the Anchored City Podcast, where we're connecting with Anchorage's soul through her history, stories, and people. I'm your host, Joel Kiekenfeld. Anchorage's own, Julia O'Malley, wrote an article titled Confessions of a Sex Trafficker, How Alaska's Homeless Youth Are Exploited back in 2017. That article ran in The Guardian and painted a troubling picture. O'Malley writes Sexual exploitation has been an undercurrent of the state's male-dominated frontier culture since Russian explorers first came to the region, and men flocked to the state during the gold rush. Law enforcement, prosecutors, and victim advocates have long suspected that the state has a high rate of sex trafficking, but the problem has largely been understudied. Recently, though, a small study of trafficking among homeless youth offered some data to support these suspicions. In April, researchers at Loyola University New Orleans released statistics based on interviews with youths aged 17 to 25 at Covenant House youth shelters and other service centers in 10 cities across the country. They found that Anchorage had the highest percentage of respondents, more than one in four of the 65 interviewees, who reported being trafficked for sex or labor. The average among the other shelters was roughly one in five. The definition of trafficking in the study is exploitation of a person's labor through force, fraud, or coercion. The study found that 27% of the young women interviewed at the Anchorage shelter and 17% of the young men reported being trafficked for sex. LGBT youth were more likely to be victims. Most of the youth who said they had been trafficked or engaged in sex in exchange for housing were homeless at the time. With statistics like that, the wicked problem that is human trafficking can feel intractable. This season, we're considering what is possible. On this episode, we are considering what is possible in the area of human trafficking with Josie Hiaino of Signify Consulting. Here's our conversation. There
1: oceans, and there are deserts that I have yet to cross. And I have dreamed of faraway places where imagination just gets lost And I would search the wide world over For one proverb that is true But of all the roads I'll ever walk I just, I can't have you
2: well, good morning. My name is Josie Hayano. Um, I am Degaton Athabaskan from Alaska. Uh, My mother's family is from the village of Tanana, and my dad's family is from the village of Ecock. Um, I am a social worker, um, a therapist in training, um, a community advocate, and a commercial fisherman. I think that about sums it up.
0: Only in Alaska can you add commercial fishermen to like the list of other things, right? I know.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's typically about a month-long part of my job and my life and my identity. So I feel like it's necessary to include.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you and I spoke a couple of years ago. We were just talking about this before we uh hit record, um, when you were working with Covenant House. So it spoke with you and and Josh Lowers uh back in the fall of 2021. Um yeah. and at that time, um you had made a comment that I then turned into the title of that podcast, mm-hmm. which is it's unacceptable to be sex trafficked, but it's acceptable to buy sex. And, mm-hmm. and when I reached out to you about this interview, you said, oh, I'd love to clarify that. That's something I've wanted to clarify for a long time. So let's just start with that. What what needs to be clarified about that statement from the conversation that we had a while back?
2: Yeah, um, I was that was kind of kismet to me that you reached out because I had recently... I was trying to see if my new website was working and I had Google searched my name, trying to see if the website pulled up. And I I saw the quote and I was like, man, I really need to reach out to Joel and kind of expand on that. Um, So I remember very vividly, you know, Josh asking me to participate in this podcast with you. Um, I was super nervous up until then, really no kind of public speaking experience, um, Full confession: I'm very introverted. <laughs> I would probably prefer to to not do a lot of public speaking, but I found a lot of um, energy and purpose in in being an advocate. So it's it's just kind of led down this path. Um, so I was very nervous, um, and I remember there was a lot of things I wanted to say during the podcast, um, and you know, nerves kind of take over, and you you don't always hit all the bucket list items, but. Um, I kind of squeezed in at the end, wanting to address um, this kind of weariness that I had at the time. Um, and I think looking back now, I can see that weariness as more of a moral injury. Um, I had been working as a case manager um, in an anti-trafficking program at Covenant House, which meant we were doing a lot of education and training in the community. We were doing a lot of education and training with youth that we were working with. Um, doing a lot on kind of the prevention side and it felt like there was all of this momentum within Covenant House within the community to really you know stop trafficking Um, and I think the weariness for me came from uh, my team was spending so much time on education and training um, but there was still this population of people who we were hearing about and knowing about who it seemed very intentionally wanted to buy sex from individuals who were not in a safe situation and who were maybe not consenting or of the age to consent. Um, And that's where that comment that um, it's unacceptable to be sex trafficked, but it's acceptable to buy sex came from. And the acceptable to buy sex really should have been expanded. You know, I should have said something like, we're so focused on prevention and awareness and taking this stance to stop trafficking, But what about our societal and cultural norms that exist that create buyers who are looking for sex from individuals who are being forced, um, who are being coerced into sexual contact or who are not of the legal age of consent? Um, My previous statement I think really sounds like I'm condemning sex work, which was that was not the conversation or the intention. Um, And I think the moral injury that I felt at that time, and and quite honestly, still to this day feel, um, is seeing the, and hearing about the masses of buyers of every race, every social economic status, who are not just seeking to purchase sex, but they're seeking to search, purchase the harm of another human.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for clearing that up, because that does put a different light on that statement.
1: Yeah. And
0: it expands a little bit of what in some ways yeah what was happening for you at that moment as well but then also what the work the work tends to focus on one area and not the other like how do we change this Mm -hmm. social norm that there's still folks out there who see that as acceptable or something that they are seeking so i appreciate you clarifying that
2: yeah and i think you know the more that i the more that i do this work and and talk with people and talk with communities you know this issue intersects so heavily with with so many other issues in our society. Um, you know, I think when I think about that moral injury and kind of where I was at having that conversation with you, um, you know we talk about trafficking, but then I also felt the, you know, the injury and the weariness at, um you know, generations of, you know, young people being um, raised in a culture where, Um, you know, it might be normal to see harm done to women or, um, you know, violence done to, you know, intimate partners. And I think that's where kind of the weariness of these generations of harm um, are contributing to this issue of human trafficking in Alaska.
0: So this season, we've been kind of wanting to talk about what is possible. And that sprung from kind of a conversation that that Josh actually, <laughs> that we're talking about, and his wife had around, around homelessness. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later in the season. But the idea that some of these large issues that we talk about, like human trafficking, um, seem like, you know, like they, they're they endless or they're un you know, <laughs> there's nothing we can do. Um,
1: mm-hmm. So when
0: I reached out to you to, to say, would you be willing to talk about what's possible? I was fascinated with your response that much of your platform is about the value of lived experience outside of the realm of storytelling. So we've mm-hmm. been doing some storytelling, but I know that's also a route that's often used with, with um, lots of issues. So could you talk about what does that look like to to value um human experience or lived experience, um, but have it look different than storytelling? How do you see that um, in the work that you're doing? Yeah,
2: super excited to talk about that. First of all, just kind of. Uh, shout out to Josh um, as I was reading through um, or you know thinking about my the conversation I wanted to have today you know, all of these people came up for me um, who have been mentors friends colleagues in this work um, and those are the type of people that for me lend to this conversation of what is possible I think that you know, we have such an incredible community here. And, and my work that I get to do, that I have the privilege to do is is really only possible because I've had friends and mentors in this field, um, you know, within Covenant House, within law enforcement agencies, within advocacy spaces that, uh, that make room for people. Um, and I just am, you know, really humbled at that and really just Yeah, I just get excited about it. I could go off and and list all kinds of people for you. But um, this topic of lived experience is really important in so many spaces, like you said. Um, I think I've seen agencies, especially in town, are learning the value of lived experience in so much social services work. Um, You're seeing more peer support, more lived experience experts, subject matter experts. um, And these roles are so important Um, and they bring extremely valuable expertise. Um, you know, as humans, we naturally gravitate towards and learn from stories. Um, we want to hear people's stories to better understand their perspectives, to learn from them, um, to maybe even feel a sense of connection. Um, I personally love hearing stories and getting to learn from people's lives, which works pretty well for me as a social worker and a therapist. I think there's tremendous power in story, um, but you know the the saying with power comes great responsibility and i think as um as much as we can benefit from story we also have a responsibility to to manage story responsibly within social service spaces spaces um so i'll just share kind of first and foremost i in uh, january of 2022 um so just about a year now um i was appointed by president biden um to be a member of the United States Advisory Council on Human Trafficking, um, which is a pretty big deal. (laughs) Um, But I am the first um, kind of survivor leader within that space on that council to to not be listed on the website um, and to not kind of have that forward-facing platform on the website. And I did that really intentionally. Um, And I did that out of respect for kind of myself and where I'm at and for other survivors of human trafficking. Um, The field of anti-trafficking and advocacy, support services, prevention and intervention, um, I think is rapidly expanding to create space for survivors. Um, These survivors inform, educate, train and lead to be an expert in a field that can, I think, rarely be understood by those who have not experienced it. As a social worker, I'm pretty big on autonomy, which means promoting choice. So the decision to publicly share a personal and often very tender part of yourself is one that I think should always be made under informed consent and with with a lot of care. Um, you know, I think there are various reasons why someone who survived human trafficking or another form of um, violence might choose to not share their story. And I think it's essential to respect and understand those decisions. Um, you know, I think along the thread of your your question, what's possible? I think it's possible for people with lived experience to um, you know to support advocacy and programs and prevention and intervention in in so many different ways other than storytelling. Um, I think it's possible for us to make room for each other within um, whatever agency, group we might be working for. Um, you know, I think for me, when I first kind of stepped into this field, the only people that I saw doing survivor leadership, survivor advocates were a very um, kind of extroverted, um, you know, larger than life type um, speaker, someone who enjoyed going out and, you um, you know, having maybe a social media presence or a public platform where they uh, did survivor leadership. And for me, I've always known that that's not, that's not my goal or intention. Um, I'm I'm much more comfortable and feel safer and more secure kind of in my own bubble and having more autonomy and more privacy. Um, I think that it's possible to do, lived experience expertise in the field of human trafficking in a way that aligns with um, all the different reasons that people might choose to not share their story. Um, I think when we we decide to invite survivors um, into the conversation for trafficking, we have to think about that person's health and wellness. Um, As a therapist, I talk all the time with my clients about the decision to talk about trauma. Which is a decision right you know I work with clients to recognize what's the physiological response to sharing your story how does that feel um you know I work with clients to create spaces and times where story sharing feels safe and to be very intentional about asking themselves will this conversation will this storytelling be helpful or hurtful to me right now um I think, Joel, you can probably re- probably relate. Most of us can think of people or places or situations where we feel safe to be vulnerable, where we feel safe in sharing a story. And then other situations and spaces where maybe absolutely not, I don't want to do that at all. And, and I think having the autonomy to know when those times are and when those spaces are is really important for people with lived expertise. Um, I have the privilege of working with, so many leaders from across the nation now who um, have been in this work, you know, 20, 30 years and have never shared their story. And I think the valuable insight that I've learned from them is that the story isn't what's needed, it's the wisdom. Um, and I think you know, I'll add too that we um, I'm getting to do a lot of this anti-trafficking work on a national platform now. And one thing I learned really quickly is lived expertise, in a services setting, looks very different for a survivor leader in LA than it does for me in Alaska or my colleagues in Alaska. Um, we live in small communities, and some of us here live in really, really small communities. So, if we're going to engage lived expertise in anti-trafficking, we have to acknowledge that sharing personal experiences publicly could jeopardize privacy, um, safety, and overall well-being. You know, I think um, one of the things that's been interesting to me over the last couple of years is, you know, I have um, colleagues and friends who have experience in trafficking, who work in anti-trafficking spaces, who still to this day, um, you know, people that had harmed them many years ago are still in the community, are still maybe even participating in the same trafficking schemes. So the threat of safety can be very real as well. Um, and I think, um, you know, when we talk about trafficking in Alaska, you know, what we see a lot of is familial trafficking as well. So you can imagine the the complexity and, um, you know, just the depth of someone who might have that desire to inform with lived experience, but maybe their trafficking was familial and having to tell that story can be um, invasive in, in a much different um, way than others. I feel like I'm really going on here. Do you want me to keep <laughs> keep talking on this? Because I definitely can.
0: <laughs> well, you've said a couple of things that I think are really important to underscore, mm-hmm. like the idea of one, just what's the what's the um, kind of mental and emotional toll of telling a story, or is that safe for mm-hmm. somebody to tell the story? Is it even physically safe because of like you're saying, especially in Alaska, living in small communities where folks are in real close contact with each other all the time. So there may be really good reasons not to tell the story for safety reasons, yeah. but also said something in there about the idea that the that what's more important than the story is the wisdom. Um, and I, I also love the picture that you're painting of like um, an advocate can look a lot of different ways. We can create mm-hmm. a, a large table um, that works for different personalities and different skill sets and different different experiences frankly not all lived experiences exactly the same so I love that picture of creating kind of a more open a more holistic way of of learning from those who have the experience with Mm -hmm. with maybe without the story needing to be told
2: yeah absolutely I think there's so much that can be learned and I think more importantly there's there's some things that can only be learned from people who have this lived experience. Um, and our experiences are so vast and so different. Um, you know, I, I never cease to be amazed when I sit with, um, you know, my fellow council members, and we're looking over a report, and and someone points out something that could be a potential barrier, and I would have never thought of it. Um, and I think the people writing it would have never thought of it. But it just so happens that that, particular council member had experience of something like that and could speak to um, not only what the barrier would be, but what a potential solution would be. Um, And I think for a a lot of people who choose to um, share that they have lived expertise in any area, um, especially in the anti-trafficking area, I think the choice to share that, and I'll, I'll actually, I'll just speak from me the choice to even share that to begin with um was to ask to be heard and ask to have my what I have learned on this topic um included and incorporated um and I think the choice not to share a story comes from wanting to shift the narrative in in all lived experience from um Just being about the personal experience to the value of broader advocacy efforts and the incredible network of friends and colleagues that do this work with me. Um, You know, I I spoke earlier about making room for people. That's really important to me in this work because it has been gifted to me so many times. Um, I believe that my work in raising awareness, supporting policy change, and helping other survivors is far more impactful than anything I could share about my story. And I think oftentimes the role of a survivor is is thought to be this front-facing public spokesman. But like you said, um, that table's diverse, right? Just like we as professionals are diverse. Not all of us are the ones that wanna get up on the podium and speak. Some of us are brilliant data analysts. Some of us are incredible researchers. Some of us can write phenomenal policies and affect change and organize and advocate um, in powerful roles um, you know I personally am in love with my field of work of social work um, I identify as a social worker a, I identify as someone who can affect change who cares about community and um, that's how I like to identify um, I think all of the skills that people with lived experience have um, there's room for that in this work And I think that's what's possible. And that's what gets me really excited.
0: Yeah, what comes to mind as you're speaking is um, Renee Girard, who is an anthropologist and a thinker, talked about the intelligence of the victim, meaning Mm. the victim really knows what's going on um, and informs um, in in all the ways that you're talking about. So I don't think in any one way, because I think you're absolutely right. We tend to, as a culture, want to put the charismatic, Bigger than life kind of personalities out there. Um, I think in all fields. I mean, it, and mm-hmm. there are so many other ways um, to contribute and to share the knowledge um, yeah. that you have from lived experience.
2: Yeah, and definitely not to downplay or um, devalue the work of the survivor leaders that that take that that front facing leadership. I think that's incredibly valuable and important too. I just remember thinking, well, I have this wisdom. I'm. I want to be a part of the work in my community, but I don't want to necessarily do that. So like, where do I fit? And and that's what we've been, I've been exploring. And um, that's what I'm getting really excited about right now.
0: So we've talked about this before. I mean, I talked about this when we were um, a couple of years ago, and we were talking about this subject on the podcast that Anchorage has the distinction of being the first place that prosecuted. Um, a case under the Trafficking Victims Protection Act that Congress passed back in 2000. So I still think of it as a new law, but it's not. It's almost 25 years. Yeah. Um, I'm getting old, I guess. I still think um,
2: I just graduated high school. So
0: yeah. There you go. <laughs> Put it in perspective, right? Um, and I think You had just talked about finding your place. And for listeners, I I wonder if you'd be able to talk about, like, you've already started to begin to talk about this, but what is possible when we think about this idea of human trafficking? Because it is one of those those things that, those issues that sometimes feel so overwhelming and like there can't be a dent made into it. There can't be progress made. And I know you don't believe that, but I think it can feel that way to folks, especially who aren't thinking about it and interacting in the ways that you are. But what is possible? Um, for us as a community in this area.
2: Oh man. Um I think it's super possible to do really hard things together as a community. Um you're absolutely right. I've I've had moments where I was like, I'm just gonna go be a barista or something. I <laughs> I can't do this anymore. I can't solve this, I can't, in fact, change. Um and, and those moments pass through pretty quickly. Um, and I think it's because of the work that I get to do means I get invited into spaces where I get to meet people who are really courageously head on tackling this issue. Um, you know, I want to share with you, I, um, again, shout out to people who have kind of mentored and, and brought me along on this journey, but, um, Erin Terry, who is a a victim specialist with the FBI, um, is a fantastic human. I have worked alongside of her um, when I was working with youth experiencing trafficking at Covenant House. um, And since then, she has just invited me into all kinds of spaces when she gets asked to train on the subject of human trafficking. Um, But recently she invited me to come down to Sitka with her. um, And the community of Sitka had invited her down um, and me um to train on human trafficking and you know Aaron and I had been having conversations recently about you know the last couple of years we do a lot of human trafficking 101 trainings right um so we go in people ask they want to know they want to learn about it and for me that was always really uplifting because I remember you know quite a few years years ago, no one was having these conversations. Um, so it's a big deal to that people want you to come in, they want to learn about the subject, they want to know how to do better, they want to know how to do more. Um, and then Aaron had this idea, um, you know, what if we take this a step further with the community in Sitka and and orchestrate like a community cafe setting? Um, so, After hours of training on the basics of human trafficking, um, we spent the evening sitting with concerned community members from across all different types of, um, you know, we had educators, police officers, um, medical professionals, teachers, um, I guess that's an educator, (laughs) Um, just people from the community who were hearing about human trafficking, who wanted to know more, who maybe had seen it or thought they had. but kind of just in general, people who wanted a healthier community. Um, So after kind of the the one-on-ones training, we sat with them and we asked them, okay, now that you know what you know, what are you worried about? What are you scared of? What are the biases that are coming up for you? What are are even the uh, misconceptions that you had that are making you feel uncomfortable now? You know, we really have this kind of deep level conversation with the community about not just here's the basics of what this issue is, but what are the things kind of within ourself, our culture, our society that might be barriers? And, and let's talk about those. Let's get those out and have a conversation. Um, and it was a beautiful conversation, Joel. Um, it was hard. You know, there were community members that didn't necessarily agree with each other, maybe had different um, philosophy around the subject, um, but they were really able to come together around um, wanting this healthier community and wanting to do more and do better and acknowledge um, what could hold them back. And I think. Um, You having that conversation was, for me, like I I got teary quite a few times. Like, and I'm not a teary person. I mean, you can ask lots of people. I don't like to cry. (laughs) That's probably my own fear of vulnerability. Um, But I got teary a few times because I was watching this small community talk about the fact that. Um, They have generations of violence within families um, and generations of sexual abuse and alcoholism and addiction, and really talk about that their fear of talking about human trafficking was sometimes rooted in all of these other issues that are really hard to talk about too. Um, So we got to see this community not only talk about these issues, but really see each other and have safe conversation with each other about this. Um, and we kind of wrapped it up with this, um, I thought, a really cool way to close this out. But we, we kind of took Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? And we said, when we're working in trafficking intervention prevention, we use this hierarchy quite a bit um, to address, you know, here are the different ways that you could potentially be vulnerable to exploitation, you know, if you don't have your basic needs met, or if you don't have... Um, a sense of self-esteem or belonging—you know, these are these are things that traffickers could use to 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 pull you in. Um, and so we took the same triangle and we said, "What does the community of Sitka have? What do you have in your community to help with self-esteem?" And the community members told us. Um, about the different organizations and clubs and volunteer places that they have where someone might be able to learn a skill to be a part of something bigger than themselves. You know, we talked about where can people get their basic needs met. Um, so we essentially created this triangle of community um response and said, these are the things that Sitka already has that contributes to healthier communities, to people feeling um self act, you know, a sense of self-actualization, a sense of belonging, a sense of even sometimes love. Um, So we got to have this really, I mean, it was two days. It was a lot of training, a lot of talking, um, but walking away from that, for me, it just felt like we we have this really big complex problem. Like you said, the problem that feels like it can never be solved sometimes. I think in human centered design, they call those the wicked problems. Um, So we have this wicked problem. But looking out kind of at this room of people who five o'clock on a Tuesday night are sitting in the community hall having profoundly difficult conversations. For me, that felt like we also have really courageous and brave communities that are willing to do the work. And you know, another thing that really struck me about Sitka was everywhere I went, the community hall we were at, the airport, the hotels everywhere were signs about human trafficking. Um, with definitions, with who to call, um, with letting people know that there was a safe place to talk. And I thought, you know, imagine being someone coming to Sitka with the intention to recruit and traffic people. And you see a community who has put signs literally everywhere. (laughs) And I just thought, man, that's awesome. It's a community that has opened their eyes. And I think that we see that in Anchorage now. We're seeing that in some of our rural communities. I think what's possible is is awareness, is, is being able to see the topic as not just trafficking, but as something that is so complex in our societies and our cultures, and be able to really address it in a in a holistic way. Um, yeah, I just, man, that was a really cool trip to Sitka. Um, and when you asked me what's possible, I think um, for Alaska in particular, I think um, we can really you know, very quickly make some changes on how um, how we talk about human trafficking, how we structure prevention, how we provide services. Um, there's a lot of grant funding coming in right now. Um, I know programs like the Alaska Native Justice Center are doing amazing work at um, incorporating that um, generational and historic resilience from Alaska Native communities into anti-trafficking work. I think that's beautiful. Um, you know, there's a lot of just people who are coming forward to do this work in communities. Um, and I think that that collaboration just makes me crazy excited.
0: <laughs> what I love about the Sika example is it's it was so um, community-based, like mm-hmm. every, you know, people coming together to hear each other. Um, and then also even like thinking about the, the, the hierarchy of needs, like looking for what we do have. And instead of like, we often tend to our brains want to go to what we don't have, Um, forget like we have all these, these things that are here that can support this. And I love that making those connections. It's just a beautiful thing.
2: Yeah. I mean, Aaron and I were both noticing that um, sometimes when we would finish a training, it would feel kind of heavy, you know, and people would say, okay, well, what do we do? Um, and we didn't have a clear-cut response. And I think being able to model um, and to point out, you know, so many of our communities here really do a good job at um, having support structures. Um, and I think being able to point those places out and maybe get some extra training to the providers at those places um, is a great place to start. Um, and yeah, I think you know what really stuck out to me in Sitka, in particular. I think, And it's been an underlying theme and I think contributes to some of that heaviness and wickedness of this problem is that, you know, we started off with this conversation about human trafficking and it wasn't very long before we were talking about child abuse and poverty and racism and sexual assault and domestic violence and addiction and mental health and suicide. And so, the, I mean, it got big and heavy fast, but that's this issue, right? Like when we talk about human trafficking, we are talking about complex social structures that contribute to the factors that make someone, um, I, don't, I don't really like to say vulnerable, but that create um, the opportunities for trafficking. Um, and those are hard conversations to have. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. I mean, it reminds me a little bit of last season, we talked about um, homelessness as a hydra, like with all these different things that it connects to. And what you're describing is another, maybe all wicked problems are this way, right? They're, they're a hydra of all these different things that are interconnected. And as soon as you start talking about it, you start making the connections to all these different things that are feeding, Mm -hmm. feeding some of the things that we look at sometimes as a standalone problem, but they're actually so interconnected with lots of things. You recently started a new venture, (laughs) uh, Signify Consulting. Um, The mission, I pulled this off your website, to bring awareness to the prevalence of human trafficking in Alaska, uplift the wisdom of communities, and tackle the most complex social issues with creativity and courage. And we're starting to hear some of that already in this conversation. Um, But tell me and listeners a little bit more, what, what do you do with Signify Consulting, or what are you hoping to do, or both?
2: Yeah, so Signify started off, um, I actually, I had left Covenant House, left direct service and went to grad school to get my master's in social work um, and was still kind of doing some side projects here and there. Um, And um, I was doing my graduate fellowship with an agency called Prevention Now. Um, Once again, plug shout out to mentors and friends. um, Kristen Harris is the co-founder and CEO of Prevention Now a former FBI um, analyst who is an incredible woman an incredible advocate. Um, And she took me on as a a fellow with her program. And together we did the, we did a data needs assessments, like a landscape analysis of Alaska, which um, got big really fast. You know, we we set out to just kind of hear, to learn about what data existed in Alaska um, human trafficking and what we learned really quickly was that that was a really complex question. Um, So we did a data needs assessment where we asked people not just what data exists but how is data used in your organization and not just how is it used but like we got pretty social worky with it when we said how do you feel about it? Um, You know is data a stressor for you in your job? Is data just kind of one more thing you have to do or do you understand and value the relationship between data and programs and services and funding um so we did this really cool um, survey that kind of just got sent out to stakeholders as we learned about them and talked about them and, you know I remember my um, colleague who who does research and and surveys all the time thinking we weren't you know we'd be lucky to get you know a handful of responses and we actually ended up getting you um, God, I think it was somewhere around like 120 responses statewide. Um, so for me, I was like, yeah, Alaskans, we take our surveys. <laughs> um, but I, I was really proud of that. And that that kind of um, snowballed into, um, you know, frequently in the response section on there, there was kind of a text box and people wanted to talk more about the subject. So we actually had the first annual um, Alaska Human Trafficking Data Needs Summit. Um, and we brought a group to a group of people together at the nave, mostly survey respondents, but it was law enforcement, social workers. Um, we had, I think, de- Department of Law was there. Um, you know, agencies that were working within anti-trafficking, and we just talked about, like, you know, data as it exists. What are we doing? What tools are we using? How is that working? How is it not working? And and really just connected with each other on this issue um and so I think from those connections from those meetings with stakeholders and and honestly a lot of it was me just calling people and being like hi I'm Josie I'm a grad student you don't know me but I want to ask you questions um and it's a small community so I think I got to to build relationship with people um and those relationships have kind of formed into a lot of opportunities for me um and that's where Signify came in is that I, I felt like I needed some type of Um, I'm waving my hands. I forget this is just audio. Um, (laughs) I needed some type of platform or or formal structure to do this very specific type of advocacy uh, advocacy work. And I felt like um, it didn't really align with my job as a therapist, you know, working towards clinical licensure. And I thought, well, you know, this isn't really therapist work. This is very macro. And I, I don't know where to fit that. And so Um, you know, for a while, I was kind of just taking on a lot of extra stuff, um, just randomly. Um, And then I decided, let's, let's kind of formalize this. Um, And the name signify for me is really important. Um, I didn't want it to be my name. I didn't want it to be like Josie Hiano Consulting. Um, And I kept going back, bouncing back and forth between, I want to do this, because I'm passionate about it and it gives me energy, and I think it's really important. And then this other side, which was, it's also really scary, and um, it's a vulnerable space to be in. And not only is it a vulnerable space, but it's it's a wicked space too, right? Like it can it can be exhausting, it can feel too much, it can get overwhelming. And so I think that kind of natural response for me sometimes was wanting to kind of shrink back into something smaller, something safer. Um, and for me, the strength and the courage to do this um, really comes from not just my experiences, but my years working um, in direct care and seeing the experiences of so many people. Who, you know, there was a time I thought that like my story, my situation was really unique, and I learned very quickly that it wasn't, um, and that my story was so much more of a universal story that so many people um, were, were experiencing, and. the word that kept coming up for me was this is significant those stories are significant the um, young people who let me walk alongside them at covenant house who are no longer with us anymore um, who did not survive trafficking experiences their stories are significant um and so my courage to do this my desire to keep being in this space really comes from a place of of um holding those stories and holding them sacred and a part of me and, um, and giving back to my community with that in a way that I'm still trying to figure out. But so far, it's been a lot of training, um, a lot of just education, um, one-on-ones with agencies, with concerned community members. Um, and it, it's kind of evolving. Um, I'm not sure where it's going to lead yet. Um, but it it's been a really exciting chapter for me. Um, you know, I have, obviously the council has been a big part of the consulting piece, which which means I get to lend um, Alaskans voices to a, a very um, large federal platform. Um, and I also have a couple um, contracts under con- uh, signify that advise grantees um, that are doing, federal grantees that are doing anti-trafficking work. So, It's an exciting platform, an exciting place, Um, and I'm, I'm hoping to just use this consultancy as a way to not only be a teacher, but to be a learner and to be able to be invited into communities and hear and learn from them as well.
0: If listeners wanted to know more about Signify or to get in touch with that? How, how should they do that? And maybe I would add too, if, if there are listeners who are wanting to get involved with advocacy around human trafficking, like where should they start? So how do they connect you with you at Signify and how does folks get started if they're feeling called to to work in advocacy around this?
2: Yeah, um, so I built a website. <laughs> um, if you're a techie pro, don't go on it and judge me. I, I think I used... I don't remember what service anyways, you know, as one of those person that knows nothing about computers, built a website, um, but it's signifyconsultingak.org. Um, that's probably the best place. There's a contact sheet on there. Um, my email as well. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn. If you look me up at Josie Hayano, you can find me. Um, there's a, a link to my signify page on there. Um, and I think you, know, you actually bring up a good point. One of the, probably one of my biggest roles within Signify within this consulting space is, is helping to be a bridge and a connection for people. Um, you know, I think so much of any type of advocacy work really is all kind of about who you know um, and who those people know. And I think um, you know, going back to that theme of making room, um, I love being able to connect people to the agencies, to the organizations, to the causes that are important to them. Um, you know, I've I've had a lot of um, people do that for me. Um, and it's a really valuable part of the work I'm doing. Um, I would say definitely reach out to me if you're interested in getting involved in advocacy, um, even if you're just interested in learning. Um, you know, I have quite a few files on my desktop that are just, um, you know, reports and research and data. Um, there's some really, incredible work being done, not just in Alaska, but across the nation, Um, you know, I have the opportunity right now. A lot of my co-collaboration is with um, groups that are working in the missing murdered indigenous person spaces, you know, that heavily intersects with human trafficking, especially here in Alaska. Um, I have colleagues in Hawaii who just released their first um, missing murdered indigenous persons report for the indigenous people of Hawaii. Um, You know, i I think being a connector in these spaces is is something that's really exciting to me. So definitely reach out no matter what your your interest, your advocacy, skill sets are. There's room for everybody and anything in this work.
0: Thank you for that. I'm going to ask the final question that I asked all of our guests, which is, in the middle of all the work that you're doing, is there a, a spiritual or mindfulness or wellness practice that you do that keeps you centered? in what you're doing?
2: Mm-hmm. I think honestly, um, Signify kind of formed as a wellness practice for me. I think being able to get that 20,000 foot view in the macro lens of, of this work was really important for me. Um, being in direct care for quite a few years, I think I got a little bit, um, You get it gets hard to see the bigger picture um, and that doesn't feel good. Um, I think the the council itself for me is a huge part of my self-care right now, just because I get to be so much of a learner in that space. Um, I learned so much from my fellow council members, from the agencies that we talk to, Um, and just to elaborate a little more, um, for those who aren't familiar, the United States Advisory Council on Human Trafficking um, was actually established by the Justice for Victims of Trafficking Act in 2015. Um, and it provides a formal platform for trafficking survivors to advise and make recommendations on federal anti trafficking policies to the president's interagency task force to monitor and combat trafficking in person. Um, so it's a pretty big deal. Um, and I think that I get a lot of self care and wellness in knowing that I get to um, voice and represent Alaska as the first Alaskan, first Indigenous person on this council. Um, and I get to learn so much more that I can hopefully bring back to my communities. Um, I think, you know, I want to shout out to my professor, um, undergrad professor and advisor, Dr. Laverne Dementiff at UAF. She taught me about this concept of community care. Um, and that's a big part of, of my wellness. I think we get taught a lot about self-care and the things that we're supposed to do to take care of ourselves. And I loved when Dr. Dementif introduced community care because it resonated so heavily with me, right? You know, there are times when I don't have what it needs to be the one that takes the best care of myself. And that's where my aunties might cook for me or my friends check up on me, or, um, I have a coffee date with my colleagues at that feeling co and, and we take care of each other in that way. Um, and then I do the same for them. I think community care is a huge part of my self-care and wellness. Um, and then just as a therapist, I'm always trying to learn um, learn new skills and coping skills for, for clients. Um, I'm super into the mammalian dive reflex lately. Have you heard of that?
0: I no, I haven't. No? Okay.
2: Um, yeah, super into that lately. Um, when I find myself in um, high anxiety, high stress situations, um, I've been practicing just kind of filling up a, a sink with water and and submerging my face for a little bit. Um, and it's really interesting, I guess all mammals have this dive reflex that's actually con- controlled by your um, your nervous system that will actually slow down your heart rate and redistribute oxygen through your body, preparing you to dive into water. Um, but what that does for someone in a high stress, high anxiety situation is really just kind of instantaneously regulate your nervous system. So super cool life hack, um, <laughs> look a million dive reflex. If you're, if you're looking for something to kind of, um, yeah, help, help de-stress, help re-regulate. Um, there's all kinds of cool stuff like that you can do, but yeah that about sums it
0: up thank you so much for sharing that especially the idea of community care we often think of Mm -hmm. spirituality and mindfulness and self-care like is in a very individual sense and there is this way that we need to take care of each other as well so thanks for bringing that up
2: yeah no I think it's a it's a cool concept and I'd I'd love to see it taught more not just in educational settings but um maybe just with each other and younger
0: Josie, thank you so much for showing up here and being vulnerable and uh, talking to me even yeah. said early on. You're kind of an introvert, so I know it's not always fun to do these kind of things when you're an introvert, but I thank you so much for sharing your knowledge on this and what's possible around human trafficking. I really appreciate it.
2: Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it, too. And um, as much of an introvert as I am, I enjoy these conversations. I enjoy um, spreading awareness um, and appreciate the work that you're doing. So thanks for reaching out.
0: My thanks to Josie for joining me and sharing what is possible in the area of human trafficking. I really enjoyed our conversation and found it really thought-provoking, and I hope you did too. Until next time, I'm Joel Kiekenfeld. Be good out there. Thank you so much for listening. We're grateful for you, our listeners. If you are grateful for what you're hearing, please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and recommend us to your friends. Those are small things, but they make a huge difference. The Anchored City Podcast is a production of the Anchorage Urban Training Collaborative. The mission of the Collaborative is to train the heads, hearts, and hands of urban leaders to love their city and seek its peace. When we say peace, we mean a desire to see a world where all things are the way they're supposed to be for all people. Find us online at anchorageutc.org or on social media at AnchorageUTC. Resources used to make this episode can be found in the show details. Our theme music is by Anchorage's own Monica Lettner.